Hello and welcome to Pod Rocket. Today I'm here with Meredith Buff, who is the co-founder and CEO of Anvil. How are you? All right. Great to be here. Yeah, so I was checking out Anvil a bit before the episode and very excited to learn about it. So can you give us all a quick introduction? Um, you know, what is Anvil and, uh, you know, uh, sure. yeah, why, why is it interesting? <laughs> so Anvil is a web framework. It's a way of building web applications quickly and easily. Uh, so instead of having to wrangle you know, five different programming languages and a ton of different frameworks to get anything deployed, uh, you can instead go to a visual editor, drag and drop to build the user interface you want on your page, write Python that ru that's going to run in your browser, so when you click a button uh, or in otherwise interact with a page, uh, you can call server-side Python that you can also write in this in-browser editor, uh, set up databases, and then there's a built-in hosting platform so you can deploy your application, just choose the domain name and ship it. So the idea is that anybody who can code a little bit can build and deploy a real working web application. Got it. So I have a lot of questions. The first the, and the biggest question that comes to mind in a world of seemingly everything web-related kind of going to JavaScript, why Python? So I think the real answer is first to talk about why all one language, because that was the first decision. Because if you're sitting down to build a traditional web application today, uh, think about it from the perspective of your data. Uh, your data is probably going to start as rows in some database accessed by SQL, which is you know a programming language. And then you're going to pull it into something on the server side. And there's, there's quite a lot here. Some people use JavaScript. Lots of people use Python. Lots of people use Ruby. Uh, but it's going to be objects in your programming language on the server side. And that's accessed by uh, methods and attributes. And then you're going to turn around and you're going to re-render this data as JSON over HTTP endpoints, which is a different thing entirely. It's this weirdly limited format over this weirdly limited interaction paradigm with only like four verbs, get, post, put, delete. Uh, but on the other end of that connection is JavaScript code that's reassembling that data into uh, objects on the client side with their own methods and their own attributes. And then it's going to turn around, it's going to re-render those into HTML DOM, which is its own thing, and then style that with CSS, which is a completely different programming language again to get the pixels. And for most people who do web development, their day-to-day -day is the transformation of their data between these different representations and back. And this is the primary source of friction in web development. And it's also the source of the churn because people keep feeling that friction. They feel the amount of work it takes to like put a button on a screen that sticks something in a database when you click it. I mean, it's insane. Five different programming languages. And you know, that's before you start on the frameworks, the React, the Redux, the Bootstrap, the, I don't know, Flask, SQL Alchemy, uh, Webpack. I, I haven't even started on the DevOps stuff. And they, they feel this friction. They go, well... This, this bit isn't quite working. Let me build a new web framework. This will solve the problem. And of course, what they do is they swap out one of the frameworks that's helping them with one of the transformations. So you invent React, and great. You may have made the transformation of JavaScript objects into HTML DOM a little bit easier. But you haven't actually changed the number of different representations you're, you're having to drag your, your whole program through. And you haven't really changed the fact that you need to understand each of these different representations really well and understand how each of the frameworks work 
in order to use it properly. Like you need to understand how your ORM works to tickle it right. You need to understand how React works to drive React well. And actually, the churn just makes it worse because it means you keep having to learn new frameworks in all of these places as well. And it just makes the cliff harder to climb for anybody whose job, whose career is not full-time web development. So the 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 central thesis, if you like, of Anvil is this is silly. You should choose one representation and then have it all in that one representation as much as possible. So have one programming language the whole way through. Now, we chose Python for, for a few reasons I can get to in a moment. But the idea is, if everything is in Python, then you're not, you know, to, to put something on the screen, you're not generating code in another programming language that gets styled by a second programming language to create pixels. No, you instantiate a text box object and you add it to your page in the appropriate place. And then you, manip- you manipulate it by driving a Python object in a way that, you know, will feel quite natural to you. And equally, the, the Anvil's built-in database is actually an object database. And you will pull a Python object out of that database and then you'll return it. So every time you uh, communicate between client and server code in Anvil, you're not mashing everything into JSON. You're making a function call because you know it's Python running in the browser. You know it's Python running on the server. You can just make a function call. And that function call can return this object, which is a database row. And you can take that object all the way to your UI. You can data bind like a column from that database row into a text box. And all of a sudden, you no longer have to mash your data through these five or so different representations in order to build a web application. And that means to to get that right, to be able to do that at all, you need to be doing it all in one programming language. Now, the question then is, which language? And we chose Python for a couple of reasons. One is that it's one of the world's most popular languages. It's as valid as any other. Two is that... It is the language that is spoken the most by the people who are suffering the most deeply with the problems of the web platform. Because if you've learned JavaScript, you probably learned it to tangle with the web platform, which means you've already invested a whole bunch of your career capital in being a web developer. Whereas Python is what you speak if you're a data scientist and your main career capital is being really good at statistics, but you're still going to want to put something you know put something online so that somebody who isn't you can use it you know you don't want to make your boss drive your jupyter notebook for you no you want an interface with a button and a drop down to to query your data or your model or whatever or your uh you know your uh, mechanical engineering person you want to build like a test system for the machinery in your factory you want to put a user interface on that you don't really have you you know you're probably scripting this stuff together in something like python you do not want to spend two years becoming a full-stack web developer just to put a UI on there that the technician can click a button on. And so a lot of the people who are feeling the pain most acutely already speak Python. And the third and sort of the most, sort of the least important, but but real um, design criterion there was if you're speaking JavaScript, if all of your advice is about how to do something in JavaScript, then when someone gets stuck, they are going to go to Stack Overflow and ask, how do I do such and such in JavaScript? And the answer they will probably get is going to lead them to like to, to pull in a DOM node or start touching some CSS, and now all of a sudden they've broken their, the abstraction. And they've accidentally 
possibly without realizing it, brought in all that complexity we were trying to save them from. And so it's not that Anvil doesn't have good interop with the standard web platform. Obviously, the web platform is huge. It would be like hubristic in the extreme to think that we can abstract over everything the browser can do. So obviously, you need an escape hatch. And Anvil has you know great JavaScript import, uh, interop. You can do sort of import anvil.js and anvil.js.window.something. You can interact with those things as if they were Python objects. But you do have to know you're climbing out of the escape hatch. And one of the benefits behind having everything in this Python ecosystem is that, you know, you know when you are climbing out of the escape hatch, you know when you are getting some of the web on you. But as I say, that is less important. The most important thing is that it's an approachable language, it's the world's favorite beginner language, and it is the language spoken by the people who are suffering most acutely from the problems of the web. Not everybody. I mean, we have a ton of people who are experienced web developers who go, oh my goodness, right, well, I, I've timed myself. I can do this stuff literally 10 times faster if I don't have to mess with all this web stuff. Gimme, gimme, gimme. But uh, if you want to pick the people for whom it's going to be the most obvious slam dunk, you you do it in the language that they're likely to be speaking. Got it. Yeah, no, it all makes a lot of sense, I guess. What are your thoughts on some of the more modern JavaScript frameworks that attempt, I think, attempt to solve a, some percentage of the problems you mentioned? Like, I'm thinking of you know, Next.js and Blitz and Redwood, like the frameworks that take a more full stack approach that leverage something like GraphQL to, you know, um, improve on some of the, you know, the things you were complaining about that are kind of more REST specific, that use TypeScript across the full stack with types going for, all the way from your ORM your front end like i do feel like it's it's maybe not completely fair to to say that the javascript ecosystem hasn't attempted and is not currently attempting to solve some of these problems in a re really meaningful way so i'm curious like what your thoughts are there yeah. so the, the, i mean the, the front to back stuff like i regard that as a huge possibly the biggest improvement of anything you mentioned just the fact that well, like we finally have and again it's not just javascript frameworks open api is big here that you could actually Finally, in 2021, you can autocomplete what your backend API is doing. I mean, we had that in the 90s with Visual Basic, and it's taken the web this long to get like the basic affordances of programming tools, but we're getting there. If you like, if you wire it all together just right, and if your schema generation is working and your webpack tool chain is all wired together correctly, you can get to that place. I still, I, I would still argue that you do have to crawl over quite a bit of broken glass to get there. And you're still, as with everything in the web, you're going to be dealing with a pretty leaky abstraction in that even if you are using Next.js, um, which by the way, I have nothing against. It, I, it, it is great for, like for the reasons you can probably guess from the rant I just gave, you're going to encounter something where the abstraction slips and you are going to have to understand that your data is being mashed through all these different layers of stuff. Like GraphQL is a perfect example. GraphQL is not how JavaScript thinks of things. It's not even quite how SQL thinks of things. It's, it, it, it's, it's done exactly what I talked about previously. It has swapped out one of those layers for something arguably better in exchange for which You've got to relearn a whole bunch of your web development stuff. And also you're still having to think about how you're, you know, how to express what you want to do in GraphQL from code, and then how to interpret that into 
a query on the server side and actually do something sensible with it. So, like, I, 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 I think, I, my, my overall opinion is that it is an inc- incremental improvement. It's a genuine improvement, but it's incremental and it doesn't actually get rid of most of the problems of the web. Sorry, that sounds extremely dismissive. Like, it is genuinely very cool. It just doesn't solve yeah. the same problems Amble's looking to solve. Got it. No, t- a to- totally fair point. Um, I want to understand more how Anvil works. So could you take me through the stack? Um, what does it look like to kind of build a basic application in Anvil? What are like the the parts of that application? How do you how does a programmer interact with Anvil? Um, okay, help me understand right. All of that. So I, I can give you two versions of this, and maybe I'll do them in sequence. I'll do like the stack from the programmer's eyes view of somebody who is building application with Anvil, and then like the stack of okay, what's behind the curtain? What is making that go? So. <clears throat> from the programmer's point of view, the easiest way to build an application with Anvil. Uh, is you open up the online editor at anvil.works. It's free to use, so I would encourage you to give it a go. Uh, Blatant plug there. Let's go for it. Uh, You are in an IDE. So uh, this IDE has, you know, it's a classic IDE. You can look through all the modules that make up your application. You will start with a form, which is a chunk of web UI. Uh, You will have a, you'll be looking at a designer. You can drag and drop uh, from a toolbox of components onto that page. Uh, and then you can flip between at the top of the page between design and code mode. And when you go to code mode, you're editing the Python class that represents the chunk of UI that you are editing. And so when uh, when you create a button and then you say, hey, I want to respond to the click event on this button, that will create a method in that Python class that gets called. And uh, it's it's Python. That Python is going to be transpiled to JavaScript. It's going to run in the user's web browser when they launch the application. Uh, and there's a bunch of uh, API surface, some of which we provide, a lot of which is batteries included with Python uh, available there. Uh, but of course, uh, a real application is going to need a bit more than that. Uh, so you can also go to your application structure view and add a server module. And a server module is a Python module that will run in, in the, on the server side uh, in Anvil's serverless environment. So that is just an ordinary Python module with ordinary modules, classes, functions, what have you. Uh, but you can decorate a function, any function, at anvil.server.callable. And what that says is this function is something I should be able to call from the browser. So then you can go back to your browser, and uh, when the button gets clicked, let's say you want to do something on the server, you can do anvil.server.call. The autocompleter will pick up, hey, okay, you know, you define this server function, you want to call this one, and then you pass in arguments like an ordinary Python function call. You'll get a return value like an ordinary Python function call. And then on, on the server side, of course, well, world is your oyster. You're not compiled to JavaScript anymore. You can, you know, you want to do some machine learning, import TensorFlow, go. You want to do some data processing, import Pandas, go. You want to connect to, you know, some remote database, import PyMySQL, go for it. Uh, In in practice, of course, a database is something people ask for a lot. So you can also add a bunch, uh, you can also add uh, data tables to Anvil, which is a built-in database. You could, as a visual schema editor, you can create your schema, uh, columns, tables, links between tables, uh, and then you can access those. They are, it's an object-based database. So you can do, you know, uh, you could do app tables dot, you know, 
users.search, and that will give you a lazy Python iterator of objects, each of which represents a row on the users table. And it's like a Python dictionary. You can live update those things. You can return one of those objects from your server function to the client. And then you can display the row from the database on, you know, in your UI, you can interact with it. You can have, you know, a text box that changes it, uh, or you uh, or you can use you know, data bindings, all the usual stuff that you'd expect for uh, editing data in a user interface. And you haven't had to sort of serialize this stuff. Uh, it uses a capability model, so if if you if your server code has returned one of these objects to the client, that means the client has access to read the thing. Um, you, you don't have to do a lot of configuration. It is mostly just writing vanilla Python. Uh, then on top of that, you can add a bunch of services. So there's built-in user authentication for, you know, I want users in this application. I don't want to implement this myself for the 13th time. You know, secret storage, integration with APIs like Google or Stripe or Facebook or Microsoft or what have you. Uh, but but that's the basic of it. And then uh, when you have built your application, uh, you can hit a run button and the application will launch live in the IDE uh, with, you know, with a live console where you can execute code inside it and see the print output and so on. Uh, if you if it's working, you can then hit publish, choose a URL, and your application is live on the internet. Uh, there is, of course, uh, you know, if you want to carry on editing it, then you might want to publish a specific version of your app, so you'll pop open the version control history, which is actually an interface to Git, because, of course, it's a Git repository, uh, and uh, you know, tag a, this particular version is what's deployed on this URL, or even this version is deployed on this URL, but that version is deployed on staging URL. Uh, and, you know, they, two, they use two different databases. It just, you know, the ordinary stuff you'd expect from deploying an application. Uh, so that's from a programmer's point of view, what using AML's like. You open the editor, you construct your user interface, you write your code, you write your server-side code, you can call them as an ordinary Python function call, you can build a database, you can access that database, you can throw those live objects around, and then you can publish it. I'm curious to hear more about I'm just really digging deep, I guess, on the technical side of things like that transpilation that happens in the browser. So my first question is like, how does that work? Is that something you built or is that something you leveraged that existed in the open source world? Um, and I'm curious, like, are there any limitations to what you can do in Python that is transpiled to run in the browser? Like, can you pull in anything off a of pip or, you know, third party modules? Or Oh, yeah. Did you ask the right uh, person about this? Aware of? Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, not only um, am I one of the original the authors of Anvil, obviously, um, I am one of the maintainers of the Sculpt Python to JavaScript compiler, which is what we use. So before I dive into that particular mm. thing, let me give you like an, an sort of overall architecture of the, the sort of the uh, implementer's eye view of how Anvil works. So uh, uh, if you want to uh, investigate further, like it's on GitHub. So uh, everything that I'm waving my hands at is something you could go inspect. Um, so... Uh, the Anvil runtime, you know, operates as a web server. You will go to it. It will serve up your your application. Um, it will use so Anvil uses uh, a the Sculpt Python to JavaScript compiler to compile your server side, sorry, your client side code to Python. So that's any forms you have, and also any modules you've written that can be imported on both client and server. Uh, that will then run in your browser as JavaScript, and then uh, 
the server also takes care of, uh, you know, care and feeding of this serverless environment of, you know, when you make a call, spinning up the Python interpreter with all of your code in it, and then directing, you know, directing the calls from the browser, which go down a WebSocket uh, to running the appropriate piece of server-side code. It's all sort of an RPC mechanism. Uh, for it, The function call is the primitive of an Anvil application. So to, to um, walk into the... Uh, client-side code specifically. So Sculpt was an existing open source project uh, when we started, I mean, when we started playing with the project that would eventually become Anvil. Uh, and we sort of seized it with both hands and went, oh, this is great, uh, and immediately started contributing to it, uh, which is why I'm one of the maintainers. Uh, on One of our engineers is also another of the maintainers, uh, and we, we, we've uh, worked with many of the others. Uh, so there is obviously you're going to be limited in what you can do uh, in the browser if you're transpiling to JavaScript. Uh, it's this is one of the funny things about Python actually, because Python, as a language and as an ecosystem and as a community, prioritizes simplicity, which means the average Python program the av- that the average Python programmer writes doesn't really push the language to its edges very far. It doesn't use any you know, funky meta ma- metaprogramming magic. Uh, it, it generally sticks to straight and narrow and does stuff. But the Python ecosystem is like, it, it is bananas, really. Uh, you will find them doing all sorts of fun things. Uh, in particular, uh, Python makes very heavy use of native code in a lot of its popular libraries, which is obviously a problem if you're running in the browser because you can't just like import a module written in C. Uh, we, we've had, you know, we have had the usual sort of the spitballings at uh, at conferences about, hey, we could totally implement a pipeline for like cross-compiling this stuff into WebAssembly and then implementing the Python foreign function interface in the browser. And that would be pretty cool. But at that point, you're you are kind of um, uh, converging on the Pyodide design, which is if you haven't encountered it, is a great project originally out of Mozilla, which is like it's like a Jupyter notebook, but it's running entirely in your browser. So you go to the thing, it will download a Python interpreter, full C Python interpreter in WebAssembly, and a whole bunch of your classic libraries, you know, your Pandas, your SciPy, your NumPy, your TensorFlow, and then Scikit. Uh, uh, Lots of one. No, come on. The graph plotting one that's eluding me because I'm on a podcast and my brain has stopped. Um, and that is really, really great. But the load and parse time for a Pyodide instance is like is measured in seconds you may or may not be able to count on both hands. And if you're doing data science in an environment you don't mind loading, that's fine. If you're trying to build a web application for civilians to use, that's not really fine. And so that's not really a direction we particularly want to go. Like, If you're doing heavyweight computation in an Anvil application, the right answer is to take it to the server, do the computation there, take the results back. And because it's just a function call, that can actually be really, really easy. So the, the short version of that rather long answer is that it's really easy to write the sort of ordinary Python code that you might write in the browser uh, in Anvil. But if you want to use a lot of the ecosystem, well, that's what the server's for, uh, because it turns out that they use all sorts of 
uh, hairy, interesting things that don't really make a lot of sense in a web browser. So tell me a bit about building GUIs. Um, I, if I saw correctly, Anvil kind of helps you on the GUI side, um, constructing like an interface. Um, so yeah, what does that look like? And because um, that's you know obviously always one of the harder parts of kind of you know when you're trying to build an application quickly, the the UI is generally the one of the slowest parts. So how does Anvil help there? So okay, so how does it help? Uh, drag and drop user interface builder. Um, but like, what what is it, what is it actually? So what we implemented was a a UI toolkit in Python. So you can, of course, build this stuff entirely from code. You can. Uh, th there's no need for you to use the drag and drop designer. You can say, "Hey, I would like you know, uh, I, I I would like a grid panel with these column spacings, and I would add like to add it to my page, uh, and then I would like to add a text box, you know, from columns one to two, and then a label, you know, after uh, underneath it from columns three to four or whatever. Uh, and you can absolutely do that. Uh, and for some applications, that does make sense, especially for very regular user interfaces that you might want to create programmatically. Uh, but for a lot of the, you know, your ordinary workaday, I would like, you know, I would like something here. The drag and drop editor really does help. But because, like, the the drag and drop editor doesn't produce anything that you couldn't have produced with the UI framework, then it's, you know, it's an accelerant rather than a replacement for GUI programming, per se. Uh, there's th there's a few things that we have built into the editor uh, specifically for speeding up. So, uh, like for example, a common pattern is, hey, I want to display a collection of things on the screen, and so there's a, a repeating panel, which is a, a thing that you can give, like any Python iterable object, and then you tell it what form, what chunk of user interface it's instantiating, and then it will instantiate one of those for everything in that list. And... Uh, that part can, again, can be configured visually. So if you want to do, oh, hey, I would like a data grid to display rows from this database, that is like a two line of code operation. Uh, you know, get it from the database, chuck it into the chuck it into the items of the data grid, and you can define the rest visually. Uh, but again, when you define the rest visually, I'm talking about data bindings. And again, like what Anvil calls data bindings are very straightforward assignment expressions, right? This is the equivalent of self.textbox1.text equals, you know, self.row brackets name. And you can write that code very happily in, in the Python that's going to run on the client, or you can use the user interface to accelerate building that stuff. But I think the, the key principle here is no magic. So Anvil is open source, uh, correct? Or is, is it entirely open source or only parts of it open source? The Anvil web framework is open source. Uh, the hosting platform at anvil.works is a freemium product. So you could use the builder for free, but if you want to you know, deploy applications with it and host, uh, you want us to host them for you, then uh, you can you know, use it for free up to a certain amount or you can pay us for hosting capacity. Uh, the framework itself being open source means, of course, you can opt out of all of that and say, actually, no, I, I'm go to use my own server for this. Uh, you know, I can, you can even build your application with the online editor, just git clone the uh, the repository onto the machine and then launch a standalone server, which you can get with, you know, pip install Anvil app server, Anvil app server, dash dash app dot, you know, launch the current directory as a web application, as an Anvil application done. 
And, you know, we, we tried hard to make that process as seamless as we possibly could. So, you know, that the Envelope server bundles the Postgres database that, um, that, that, that serves the uh, application's data tables. Uh, it bundles a uh, the traffic um, a reverse proxy. So if you bring it up and say, actually, you know, my origin is HTTPS, you know, myapp.com, it will go and let's encrypt and fetch you an HTTPS, uh, sorry, a, an SSL certificate. Uh, for that domain, so we we really do. You know, th- this is not the um, unwanted cousin of the ecosystem. We do, in fact, try to make this process very easy. Uh, so you you can uh, pip install it. You can host the application yourself, or you could go to GitHub and grab the 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 library that is the Anvil runtime, and then build what you want to do on top of that. Uh, we have a hosting service that's obviously that has a whole bunch of stuff. That's like multi-tenancy and integration with our hosting environment and and uh, with the editor and so on. That is no not open source, but uh, what we are is basically that's a uh, that is a commercial development environment for the open source framework that is Anvil. Curious to hear a bit about your long term plans. Um, you know, what are you most excited about for the future of Anvil and what? You know what can Anvil not do today that you feel like is important that you're excited you know to launch maybe in the shorter term as well. So something that I'm particularly excited about right now is that uh, as as our customers as people who've used Anvil to build products uh, and by that I mean both sort of startups launching a new product and companies building internal tools that are gaining greater adoption within that company as they grow and become more sophisticated uh they have a bunch of desires that really aren't shared by people who are you know prototyping anvil is is already and has already been for some time a great environment for prototyping uh we are really excited about a bunch of stuff to make life in production a little bit easier so uh possibly by the time this podcast goes out in fact uh, we are looking to uh, launch some features around observability. So just like going and seeing, hey, my app, my app running in production, what's it been up to? You know, what has been running? What has been, you know, what has been taking the CPU time? Uh, where, you know, where have my problems been? And that that's that's going to be very exciting. And again, like we, we're taking... A lot of what we do is we take something that is possible if you put your career capital into being that kind of engineer and making it just a single click accessible to somebody. So uh, like configuring a tracing engine uh, for a deployed web application is like, it, it. it's a little bit of a ride. Again, it's been got a lot easier in the last few years, but it's still a little bit of a ride. Uh, whereas the, the idea with the hosting service is that's just, it's just there for you. And you know we, we are we are tracing your application at all times for you, so that you can do some sort of interesting features on top of it. Uh, so that's one thing I'm really excited about. Uh, the, the other direction I'm really excited about is uh, is working on th- those users who are just taking their first steps and the experience for them. Uh, there's a lot we can do still to make it easier to go from, hey, I you know I, I I've learned to code a little bit, 
to here is this application, it's live. And that, that, that's a big jump, even if you have a framework that's giving you a lot of help. And even if you're only having to learn one programming language and all this stuff. And uh, we have some, uh, some, some fun things. We've been doing a lot of uh, you know, proper user research. And I mean, that's uh, my, my PhD is in building usable programming systems. And my co-founder Ian's is in human computer interaction. This is, this is, this is, we get to sort of actually crack our fingers and, and, uh, break out the, uh, the the power tools on this one, um, and we, you know, we have some some things that should be able to make that process an awful lot easier. The final one is, I think, going to be in design because you you were absolutely right in homing in on like the 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 difficulty of building a GUI, and you know, this is inevitable. This is something I, I've come back to a few times in this that. You can't abstract over everything. Your people are going to want to do the advanced thing that the platform permits, and if you stop them, you've just killed their project. So, uh, the everything that you know is is drag dropped onto the page or, or created in code, you can of course access as a DOM element. You can of course go into the CSS that styles it. Like Anvil has a theming system, and the themes for. You, that you can apply to your applications are defined with HTML and with CSS. And that is like, it, it, it's great. And we've been really impressed by the the things that we've seen people create. And the thing that, the thing that warms the cockles of my heart most is when we see somebody who started as, well, I know a little bit of Python, swears up and down they're not a developer really, then goes to okay. I have an app that's actually running in in as a prototype. Okay, actually, it's, it's running in production. We have customers using it. Okay, we want to polish this up, and they like go. Okay, well, I better investigate the CSS thing. And then you like you look back on them a month later, and you see the screenshots of their application. And you go, whoa, because if you make it possible to do the basics with a very small amount of knowledge, you haven't restricted them from gaining more knowledge. You've just made it so that they didn't have to do that. You know, just to get on the bus. And that that is really exciting to us, but that step still did involve like learning a new programming language effectively, and we like we would really like to do two things. One is to make that process a lot a lot easier, like the on ramp to hey, you're about to tangle with some of the lower level bits of the web platform. You know, uh, here here is a better experience than what we're currently giving you. Uh, and the other is to kind of push that boundary out a little bit further to to increase the number of things that you can do style and design wise uh, before you have to you know, uh, throw in the towel and learn CSS. And obviously that, that that is a constant battle. It's one that you will never win completely because the browser is an incredibly complicated platform, but we are really excited for what we can do to like to push even further what you have to do before you start taking the next step not as a way of preventing people from scaling up, but from but as a way of enabling people to get something done without having to you know do stop and do that work. So you've touched a bit, um, you know, throughout our conversation um, on kind of the, you know, it seems like one of the goals of Anvil is to to make it easier to build web apps, make programming more accessible. So why why is that you know, something that's so important to you, and and you know why oh, so uh, yeah why, why <laughs> invest in solving that problem? So this is a little bit of a hobby horse of mine because back in the 90s, 
I, I got my start in programming with like QBasic and Visual Basic, and it was incredible. I mean, pro- programming is is magic at the worst of times, but with those tools, you could learn a little bit of code and you could be producing applications like everything else on your system, you know, that were text and graphics in DOS or that were Windows with menus and buttons and so on in Visual Basic. And like, you could get going so fast. And I think that's what really kindled this oh my goodness, this is the best toy ever. This is what I want to be when I grow up. And since then, we have, as as a species, we have built the best application delivery platform on earth. I mean, it's astonishing. You can build something and anybody in the world can use it right away. That is jaw-dropping. But as well as doing that, we, we just lost everything we had in something like Delphi. Uh, we, we set up this barrier and you said, you know, you must be this tall to ride this ride. And this tall is like five different programming languages, five different frameworks, a whole bunch of DevOps. Did I mention Git? Did I mention Docker? Oh, yeah. You need to know Linux system administration because from time to time, like there's going to be a big fire alarm like we've had over the last week or two with Log4J. And you're going to have to know an awful lot about what's underneath your stack. And if you don't, it's going to bite you. And we, the magic is there, but we're making people climb a mountain to get there. And this is like... As someone who had such an easier ride into development, I feel like it's it, it's a bit of a stain on our profession, and it's been a thing that's it's a thing that's bugged me forever. And at a certain point, Ian and I just snapped and said, "Okay, well, someone needs to fix this. It might as well be us." So it's it's really. It's really about accessibility, and it's about accessibility in the full sense of the word. There, are, If I went out into a conference and I asked, what does accessible developer tooling mean to you? They might say, oh, it's easy for novices to get started with. And they they wouldn't be wrong, because that is important, because it is kind of embarrassing that the novices can't actually do anything that looks like a real application for a really long time. But... That those aren't the only people who are getting a disservice. If you build something that's only for novices, and this is where a lot of this low-code stuff falls down really hard. If you build something that's only for novices, if you chuck them into a playpen in the corner, then you don't give them the scope to grow their powers. Because today's novice is tomorrow's intermediate, is a few years down, they are going to be the wizard. That's how they get in there. And so if you make you know the Duplo bricks for them, you're doing them a disservice. But you're also doing a disservice to the experienced professionals because just because I can write five different programming languages doesn't mean I want to, and it doesn't mean anybody wants to wait for me to do it. And again, so it, it, the the real real accessibility is something that's simple enough for novices and powerful enough for the seasoned professionals. And again, this is where maybe the Python background helps because. Anybody who works in Python knows this in their bones because they work in a language and an ecosystem. That is the first thing you give like an eight-year-old with their first Raspberry Pi. Here, try this Python program. It'll make a, make an LED flash. And, you know, by the time that kid gets a few years older and they're on Instagram the entire time, hey, guess, you know, guess what powers the entire back end of that globe bespriding service? It's a great big Django app. And it is possible to be powerful enough for seasoned developers while being simple enough for novices. And again, like, it's not like that's an impossible goal. It's just something the web doesn't do yet. So yeah, accessibility, it's important. And, you know, why why the open source business model? Like, I I mean, it's certainly one that a lot of developer tools approach, uh, that adopt, but I'm curious, like, 
you know, what, what crystallized that decision for you to, to build open source with a paid component on the side? So, I mean, fundamentally, developers are control fe- freaks. Part of the magic is that we have this machine and we can make it do whatever we want. And so, like, if Anvil was, and like when when it first launched, that was that was what it was. If it's this hosted only service that you can interact with, but you can't really you know get into the guts of it, and you know, if it goes away, well, that's it. You're out of luck. That like that is something that's going to not fit very well with the way that a developer wants to interact with their computer. And so it's, you know, that's 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 what we would want to do. It's, you know, it, if, as I said before, you know, I'm, I'm sort of building this in part for the imaginary me who was just getting started. I want to give, you know, past Meredith as good an experience getting into this development thing and becoming productive quickly as, as he got because he happened to have been born at the right time to do this in the 90s. Uh, you you want to you know imagining myself back then i would want that control that's what you know that's what i as a user would really want is to have hey i have all this power but it's actually all under my control really it's open source you know a meteorite can strike cambridge and we will be fine uh i you know i can grab it off github and whistle and carry on going and that i think that part it's yeah it's it it, it, it hits the control freakery at the heart of software development it's what i would have wanted back when this would have been a really great product for me i mean heck as i say if i didn't build anvil today i would probably use it and the meredith of today would absolutely demand an open source uh, solution and you know, it feels good from the inside the product you know the company we really want to build is the one that builds commercial development tools for an open source framework that just like that that feels like the it feels right in that intuitive sense that governs so much of the design of everything a developer deals with. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us today. Um it's been fantastic to learn about Anvil um and just hear about n- not only why you built it but the philosophy behind it, how, you know, the importance of m- making uh coding accessible. So, um yeah, really appreciate your time. For anyone out there that wants to learn about Anvil or check it out, um, the URL, I don't want to get this wrong, anvil.works. So yep. anvil.works, go check it out. Or um, you know, imagine you can search on GitHub and find it that way as well. Um, and we will put some links in the episode description as well. So yeah, thanks so much, Meredith. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it has been great fun. Uh, please do go check it out. Please do jump on the forums. Tell us what. Uh, tell us how you found it. Uh, it is free to use. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter. Or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's brian at LogRocket.